Jesus says, begin with this. Hallowed be your name. May your person and everything connected with you, O God, be treated as holy. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Just as oxygen is to the life of the body, prayer is to the life of the Christian. Have you ever wondered about the purpose and function of prayer? Is there more to prayer than a list of requests? How about seemingly unanswered prayers? Well, hello, I'm Bill Wright. And today, Tom Pennington begins a new 16-part series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray, looking at how Jesus Christ taught His followers to pray. Along the way, you'll discover the purposes, patterns, and how prayer echoes throughout the Old Testament and into the New. And you'll learn that the most important thing that Christ teaches in what has traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is this, Your greatest priority in prayer must always be to approach and treat God as holy. And Tom, as we kick off this series, every believer, whether new or old, can learn something new about prayer when studying the Word, can't they? That's right, Bill. I mean, obviously that's true. The way I like to think of it is this. What if you had the opportunity to ask Jesus Christ Himself, Lord, teach me how to pray? How remarkable would it be to sit at his feet and hear our Lord explain how we should learn to pray. Well, we have that privilege in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we're going to be studying together. Our Lord himself teaches his disciples then and us how to pray. In fact, we know he taught this prayer on several occasions. So this was was the framework that he used. And the other part of it is, I think often when we approach the Lord's Prayer, we think of it at a very shallow level we're going to discover that there is so much here. It provides literally an outline of every prayer we will ever pray. So I hope you'll join me as we walk through this powerful lesson from our Lord. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher right now here on The Word Unleashed. What our Lord teaches us in what has traditionally been called the Lord's Prayer is that the concern to treat God as holy must always be our greatest priority in prayer. Let's read it together. Turn with me to that beautiful, profound prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, in this remarkable prayer, we have not only a particular prayer that you and I can pray both in private as well as in corporate prayers together, but more importantly and more to the point our Lord is making here, He has provided us with a model, a pattern for all of our prayers. 
There are three basic elements of this prayer. As we've noted, there's a preface, our Father who is in heaven. Then there are six petitions or categories of prayer. And that's followed by a conclusion. In that preface, Jesus teaches us the attitudes we should have as we approach God in prayer. But today, we come to the six petitions. Six petitions which give us the six categories of prayer. These six petitions outline all the kinds of requests that come from our lips and our hearts. Every request you will ever make of God that's legitimate is found in this outline. But let me, as we begin, summarize them for you. Jesus teaches us here that we are to pray, first of all, about the glory of God. Hallowed be your name. Secondly, we are to pray about the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come. Thirdly, we are to pray about the will of God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Number four, we are to pray about the needs of this life. Give us this day our daily bread. Number five, we are to pray regarding the confession of sin and seeking God's forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then finally, we are to pray regarding the pursuit of personal holiness. Do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. So those are the categories in which our prayers are to come. Our requests to God are to be about His glory, His kingdom, His will, our own needs for life here, the confession of our sin, and about the pursuit of personal holiness. Now before we study the first of these petitions in detail, let me make several general observations. As you look at that list of six categories of prayer, there are some general observations we need to make. First of all, notice the proportion of this prayer. Half of the requests that Jesus is teaching us to pray are about God, and half of them are about us and our needs. Sadly, that doesn't reflect the reality, does it? Most of our prayers are all about us. Jesus says, most of our prayers should be, or half of our prayers should be about God and His glory and His work and His will. There's a second general observation here, and it's about the balance of biblical prayer. You see, when, when you look at those six categories, if we really evaluate our normal praying, most of our requests of God fall into only two of those categories. Most of our prayers are either about the needs of this life or the confession of sin. There are four other categories our Lord taught us to pray in. In other words, our prayers are significantly out of balance. A third observation about these requests is the order that Jesus puts them in. Obviously, it's by design. And it tells us volumes about what should be the priority of our prayers. The first three requests are all about God. We don't get to us and our needs until we get to the second half of this model prayer. Our prayers should begin with and be preoccupied with God and His glory and His work and His will. And only when we have first prayed regarding God are we then in the right frame of mind 
Are we ready to bring up the things that we need from Him? So those are some general observations that we can make. The first category of prayer has to do with the glory of God. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, and here's the first request, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, as we study this simple and yet profound petition, I want us to ask and to try to answer three basic questions that will help us unlock our Lord's meaning here. Three basic questions. The first question, and the most obvious one, is this. What does it mean? What does it mean? Hallowed. You know, hallowed, obviously, isn't a word we use very often. I doubt you have used that word outside of the Lord's Prayer. In fact, it's an old Anglo-Saxon word. And it's used even in modern translations, many of them, including the NAS, only here and in Luke 11, the other place where the Lord's Prayer occurs. Now, why would the translators of modern versions of the Bible use a word that we don't use, hallowed? Well, the reason is because this word hallowed has an ancient tradition. If you go back to the first English translation of the Bible made from the original Greek and Hebrew, it was done by a man named William Tyndale in 1526. And if you look at Tyndale's translation, at that time when he was translating this passage into English, he used the old Anglo-Saxon word, hallowed. But it actually predates Tyndale. If you go back to the 1300s, a man named John Wycliffe was the first to translate the Scriptures into English. But he didn't translate from the original Greek and Hebrew. He translated from the Latin Vulgate, the Bible that the Catholic Church had used through the centuries. It had to be handwritten because this was before the printing press. And when John Wycliffe in the 1300s translated Matthew 6 and 9 into English, he said, Pray then in this way, hallowed be thy name. Well, now it's absolutely entrenched in Christian thought, right? I mean, it doesn't really fit to say anything else if you're praying the Lord's Prayer. What are you going to say? So it's been passed down even into our modern translations as hallowed. The problem with that is most people don't know what it means. What does it mean? Well, while the, the English word hallowed is not a very common word to us, the Greek word that it's translated from is a very common New Testament word. It's the familiar word that's often translated to sanctify. God, may your name be sanctified. The Greek word sanctify means to set something apart, to make something holy, or the, the best way to understand it here to treat something or someone as holy. Now, this word sanctify is used both in the Septuagint. That's the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's the Bible that our Lord and the apostles primarily used in the first century. It was translated 100 to 200 years before Christ, Septuagint. That was the Bible they used. In that Greek translation from the Hebrew and in the New Testament, we see this word sanctify used of things that are set apart for ceremonial use. For example, in 
Exodus 39, it's used of the garments the priests wore. They were not to be worn every day. They were set apart from the ordinary common use for a special purpose. The same thing is true in Matthew 23 when Jesus says the gold on the temple as well as the sacrifices that are made are sanctified. They're set apart from ordinary use to special use. This word sanctify is also used of people. The priests are said to be sanctified, set apart to God. It's used of us as Christians. We are sanctified. We were sanctified positionally at the moment of our salvation. We were set apart from sin unto God positionally. And then it's used practically throughout our lives. We are gradually set apart from our sin into holiness. That's sanctification. We are set apart. On rare occasions, this word is used of God, just as it is here in the Lord's Prayer. Here's one example, Isaiah 8.13. It is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. There's our word. And he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. The Septuagint uses this word to sanctify, to hallow, and there it's translated as to treat as holy. But it's interesting because the synonym that Moses used in that text and that was brought into the Septuagint also gives us a glimpse into the meaning of this word. Because the synonym, I will be honored, when the Septuagint translators translated that Hebrew word, they chose the normal Greek word for glorify. Listen carefully. That means to treat God as holy is really exactly the same thing as glorifying him. They are synonyms. What Jesus is saying in this first petition is that we are to ask God to work in our lives in such a way that his name will be set apart or treated as holy or glorified. Now, what is meant by his name? His name will be hallowed or set apart. Well, you know that in the biblical world, a name was far more than a label like Tom or Bill It actually meant something. Often it was intended to capture something of the character of the person or the character of his or her parents or the circumstances in which they were born. I think Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, captured this idea best in his classic on the Lord's Prayer. He said that when we talk about the name of God, we're really talking about two things. We're talking about God's essence or God's person And secondly, we're talking about everything by which he is known, or all of his attributes and all of his actions. So in other words, Jesus is saying we should pray something like this. Father, may all that you are in your person, and may everything connected with you be treated as holy or glorified. Now this was a frequent Old Testament and New Testament wish and prayer. There are dozens, probably hundreds of examples Let me just give you one Old Testament example. Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your steadfast love, because of your faithfulness. In the New Testament, we see this theme as well. Let's start with the writings of Paul. Look at Romans chapter 11. And I'm going to multiply examples because I want you to feel the weight of this. Romans chapter 11, and in verses 33 to 35, Paul's talking about God's amazing wisdom in the plan of salvation and redemption. 
You can't fathom his wisdom and how he's accomplished this. Verse 36, he's talking about, notice, all things is really the subject of the sentence. All things are from him. That is, he is the source of all things. And through him are all things. That is, he sustains everything. And to him are all things. That is, he is the end of all things. He's the reason for their existence. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Turn over to chapter 16 of Romans. Paul ends his letter to the Romans on this same theme. Verse 27, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, he says, May the God get the glory in Christ and in the church forever. Look at Philippians chapter 4. Again, Paul ends his letter to the church in Philippi in verse 20. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Peter ends his second letter in 2 Peter 3.18 with this same theme. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. In Jude 25, Jude, the half-brother of our Lord, says, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Go down just a few verses to Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. John says, He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him, to God be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I've multiplied those references because I want you to get a sense of how this permeates the Scripture. This is not a minor theme, and I can multiply, multiply hundreds of references that make the same point. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying this, Lord, let everything in me and everything in the life of my family And everything in my work and in my school and in my church and in the whole world, let it bring you glory. Let me ask you, are you truly this concerned about God and His glory? Is this really the first thing you think about when you come to pray? Jesus says, begin with this, hallowed be your name. May your person and everything connected with you, O God, be treated as holy. Now that brings us to a second crucial question that I think if we can understand it will revolutionize our prayers. The second question is, why does it matter? We've seen what it means, but why does it matter? Well, there are a couple of ways we can learn how much it matters. We can learn a lot about how important it is to hallow God's name by reflecting on the disastrous consequences of those who don't. We started with Nadab and Abihu. They didn't treat God as holy. And what did God do? These were priests. These were Moses' nephews, Aaron's sons. And how did God respond to their failure to treat him as holy? He sent out a blazing, consuming fire from his presence, and he incinerated them on the spot. 
My mind goes to Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel shows up before Belshazzar, and he says to him, listen, you knew what God did to Nebuchadnezzar, your grandson. You knew how God humbled him, how he came to acknowledge the true God. And yet, knowing all of that, Belshazzar, you didn't humble your heart before God. Instead, you have not glorified the God, he says, who's in, who, in whose hand is your life breath. That's a terrifying statement. And so Daniel says, that handwriting on the wall, it's to say, your life is over, your kingdom's done. And that night, that very night, Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian Empire and Belshazzar was killed. God does not take it lightly when he is trifled with. Let me show you a New Testament example. Turn to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we meet Herod Agrippa I, one of the men who received the kingdom after Herod the Great's death. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, there are probably a couple of things going on here. No doubt he was something to behold in the, in the kingly robes and garments, sparkling in the sunlight with the jewels on them and everything else. And he probably was a brilliant man in terms of his ability to speak. There was probably also a little brown nosing going on here as well. But the problem was Herod began to read his own press. He began to believe his own press releases. And notice what happens in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Now this is a pagan. But when he didn't give God glory, God interacted to take his life. Same thing happens to all mankind in Romans chapter 1. Paul passes this indictment on all humanity. He says in verse 21, even though they knew God, that is from creation, they knew that there was a God and that he was great and he had divine power and he was eternal in his being. You can see that from the creation. We saw just a glimpse of God's power last night as that thunderstorm rolled through our area. Job calls thunderstorms the fringes of his power. You can see about God in creation. But what does verse 21 of Romans 1 say? Even though they understood this, they did not honor him. The word honor is the Greek word glorify. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. And how did God respond to mankind's refusal to see him and to glorify him and to give him thanks for all that he's done? Verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions, to homosexuality. And verse 28, he gave them over to a depraved mind. God interacts in his judgment, not of overt judgment, but of pulling back his influences so that man runs his sin out to the maximum. We see this on the front page of our newspaper every day. This is how God responds when he's not glorified. You can look into the future and see the same thing in the book of Revelation Revelation 16, as God unleashes his judgment on this planet through a series of cataclysmic judgments, Revelation 16, 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. This is in the future now. 
and it was given to it to scorch men with fire, somehow God changes the normal function of the sun, either in, in weakening our own atmosphere or in somehow moving them slightly closer or miraculously doing something else, so that now men, verse 9, are scorched with fierce heat. And how do they respond? They blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series titled, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Plan to join Tom Pennington this summer, June 24th and 25th at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas, as he introduces the Word Unleashed's first annual Faithful Stewards Conference Series. Faithful Stewards is designed for pastors, elders, teachers, and church leaders. But even if you aren't in one of those categories, you're welcome to attend. This year's theme is Loving Christ by Feeding His Sheep, a reflection on our Lord's challenge to the Apostle Peter as found in John chapter 21. There's no cost to attend, but registration is required. June 24th and 25th. Go to thewordunleashed.org to register. You know, The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.